That's all right. We'll just keep going with it. Hello, and welcome to We Blame Our Shelves, a podcast where two librarians discuss books, movies, games, you know, anything you can find on your shelf. Um, This week is a little weird for us. We have one person who's calling in, and we have one host in studio. Uh, Today, the person who's calling in is... Uh, I'm your co-host with a shameful history of reading a lot of Gundam Wing, Gundam Wing fan fiction when I was a teenager, Dan Major. And I am—I've um, actually written a lot of uh, Gundam fan fiction as a teenager. Really? No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, how, how have we not talked about that? Uh, I'm your uh, other host, James Pugh. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm excited about this week's topic, this month's topic. I'm very excited about it. What do you have, Dan? Uh, Yeah, I think it's interesting. This week we'll be talking, or this month we'll be talking about self-publishing and fan fiction. This is is so interesting to me because fan fiction especially, because I love the idea of taking like something that has already been, like you love something so much and you want to see more of it. So you just go ahead and create this um this other stories like more stories like you build upon this universe that's already there and i always find it really interesting and um yeah i think i think this is going to be a real fun topic it's it's kind of taking matters into your own hands when they cancel uh not serenity what's the show (laughs) serenity was the movie firefly firefly yeah when they cancel firefly and you want more Firefly, you just go to fanfiction.net and there are probably hundreds of stories there waiting for you. So it's a, an interesting way of fans kind of taking control of a franchise that they're really into. Yeah. Um, and the two, you know, fan fiction and self-publishing kind of tie together um, because a lot of modern authors started writing fan fiction and they transitioned to... Um, you know, releasing published works. And a lot of them went from fan fiction to self-publishing and then on to regular publishing. Or they some people just stick with self-publishing because you have a lot more creative control and distribution control. You learn earn a lot higher royalties uh, self-publishing if you can get the, you know, the publicity and everything going on your own. So there's there's a whole spectrum. I actually have a quick story about about this back when I was 19 years old I was almost a self-published author but the cost got me <laughs> a 19 year old cannot afford the cost of self-publishing but that's not to say that you know it's not it's not possible so let's uh yeah, well, let's start off with some that... go ahead go ahead I was gonna say let's let's go ahead and start off with some of these authors who started off as uh who, who got self-published and have hit it big Yeah. So actually, since you said you were a teenager, uh, when you were thinking about self-publishing, Christopher Paolini, the author of Aragon, um, which is the first book in the Inheritance Cycle series. That's about um, dragons, right? Yes. And they made a terrible movie out of it. (laughs) Um, But the books were great. Uh, The the first book, Aragon... um, he started writing it when he was only 14 years old. Um, really? And he was doing a, um, a book tour in 2003. He self-published um, the first book, Aragon. Uh, and he was on the self-published book tour. 
and I think he was like 17 at the time or something. Um, and another author happened to like pick it up and read it and recommended it to his publishing company. And it got picked up by the publishing company uh, and ended up, the first book was on the bestseller list for 121 weeks. Wow. So that's like two and a half years. It was a bestseller. Wow. Um, uh, a youth fantasy book. Um, right around kind of the height of, of Harry Potter as well. So I can see yeah. those going hand in hand. Yeah, because the, the, the um, inheritance cycle is about dragons. And yes. and Harry Potter has a lot of dragons, and so yeah, I think it. A lot of people thought it was just ca uh, uh, getting it on that cash cow, fantasy yeah. mystic. But no, it was it was its own story. It's actually a really good, like like fantasy high fantasy novel for kids. I think. Yeah, I've I've read the first book. I haven't read the rest of them, but same. I think I gave it like four stars on Goodreads. I enjoyed that. <laughs> um. Another one that's quite a bit older, um, self-publishing has been around, you know, who knows how long um, since publishing was invented, I guess. Um, but back in 1931, uh, The Joy of Cooking was originally self-published. Didn't, didn't, didn't we briefly talk about this at, uh, during our, our cookbook podcast episode? We were talking about... Um, was it this book or was it a different book? I don't remember. I don't remember either. This one. I thought it was. Anyway, anyway. Um, but first edition of The Joy of Cooking was uh, self-published in 1931. Uh, and Irma Rombauer uh, purchased 3,000 copies for herself. Um, wow. And that was a huge investment for her family at the time. Um, but after five years... Uh, and selling the 3,000 original print copies. Um, she got picked up by a publisher, and that book is revised every couple of years. It's still being revised and still being updated and it's still being sold. Hmm. It's sold over 20 million copies at this point. Wow. Um, her family still reaps the benefits <laughs> of that, but they, you know, they sunk their entire livelihood into publishing this cookbook. Um, and it was you know, before cookbooks were a very, very uh, common and consistent thing. Oh, you know what we were talking about? It was it was older than this. Okay. Um, it was the the two British. Uh, yes. Cookbook yes. Yeah. Yeah. Julie McLoone, if you're listening, please let us know what we forgot. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Sorry, Julie. It's such a cool story. The, the, <laughs> the literary and culinary feud of 19th century England. <laughs> yeah. Um, but probably the most well-known self-published author uh, at this point in time is Colleen Hoover. I don't, um, I, she comes up so often. I did not think she was self-published. I thought she was like, like you said, she had, she had like a well-established author, had her own thing going. And TikTok just kind of, book talk especially, just kind of put, boosted her into the stratosphere. But I did not know she was self-published. Yeah, so she started self-publishing. She has some books that uh, are published by herself, and she has some titles uh, more recent that have been picked up by traditional mainstream publishers. Um, I read, to prepare for this, a New York Times article from uh, October 18th of 22, um, and she kind of talks to them about the process of self-publishing versus publishing. Um, 
and she's an advocate for keeping the rights to her own intellectual material. Um, yeah. But now that she's a head and shoulders above every other author in the last year and a half, two years, and she's, you know, the number one author in the country, if not the world, um, she has signed for a couple books, but she's signed with three different publishers for oh. several different books and also continues on to plan on self-publishing. Um, so, you know, you, you can do both. You can do one or the other. You can be very successful self-publishing. Yeah. Um, but you can, you know, be... It can go nowhere, too. So <laughs> yeah, I, was... I see... I see you know, self-published authors at, uh, at book festivals and stuff that are, you know, they're sitting at a table and they sell five copies of their book in a full weekend. So yeah. it can go either way, but it's about, you know, the passion to yeah. write and tell stories. And I was going to say, I, I want, because you kind of brought it up, like how she has all these different royalties and, and she gets to keep the rights because she's self-published and this, that. I've, I've often wondered, like, how much does an author kind of give away when they go through a publisher as opposed to publishing themselves, like uh -huh. to use James Patterson as an example, I uh, that man publishes a book every six weeks and he has a new book on the bestseller list. So does he like just go into it? Like, is it a numbers game for him? Like the more I can put out there, the more money I'm going to make back in royalties or cause, cause he's uh -huh. through a big publisher. I don't know. I've always wondered that kind of stuff. I didn't really look into it for this. <laughs> I looked yeah, into, I would, I would definitely consider James Patterson an outlier. Um, I mean, anyone with a bestseller, <laughs> I consider really an outlier because for every best-selling author, there's 300 non-bestselling authors. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but you, you did mention how how you can either go gangbusters and, and be very popular or you can just kind of fizzle out into nothing. And that's really what I looked into is I was like, so how does how does one – become self-published and I did a lot of research and I looked up a lot of different um, companies and I basically found these seven steps that are universal so if you want to try to get into self-publishing these are the seven steps that basically all these uh, self-publishers try to um, promote are you ready to go through them I am <laughs> all right number one was write a book people want to read <laughs> step one to being an author self-published or otherwise <laughs> write a book but it's but the one the thing that got me is, is that people want to read that's very subjective like, <laughs> yeah 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 i mean you're gonna write what you want to write and somebody out there will like it that's how i look at it um number two is edit with feedback from beta readers and editors so mm -hmm. i was thinking um like they, they mentioned like send it out to some editors but that'll be costly they think they say go to like a writing group and I was yeah. like, oh, well, dude, check your local library, because we have one. We have a great writing group at the library, um, the Rochester Writers Group as well. Yeah. Um, are very active. And, um, you know, some writers groups will just sit down and it'll be time to write. But there are a lot of critique and editing groups out there, too. Yeah. Um, and it is important, like, you have this internalized view of what you're writing, but it may come across completely differently to somebody else. So you want to get that feedback. Like, does this actually make sense? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, is the voice right? Is the tone right? Is, you know, you have to look for typographical errors on top of plot continuity and 
yeah and characters and tone and you know there's just so much to it that you really can't do on your own yeah and and they all the articles i read they're like you can definitely hire an editor but they say just reach out to other writers because that's the cheapest way to do it because you're 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 spending some of your own money to get the book published right um Mm -hmm. another one is hire a book designer or if you're good with graphic design like consider the cover the typeface the format what it says on the back cover like these are all things that you should have like to consider when you're about to to get your book out there and that's yeah, I, I don't I know anything with about this one it. more than anything else i think the easiest way to spot a self-published book is that you see kind of an unprofessional <laughs> or an unpolished cover on it yeah not overly critical but like not all authors are artists right and not all authors give as much time and attention to the book cover and i think if you if you put if you put out a hundred books and 10 of them were self-published i bet just by sight between the two of us we could pick out all 10 self-published books yes like it's, yes it's just a font choice and and graphic choice and you know it, it can be expensive um but i think if you intend to make this into a career uh probably something worth doing yeah yeah and then and... your local artists as well <laughs> as your local authors there you go um yeah look out to your reach out to your local illustrators um but no i was gonna say i would definitely hire out for this one because i do not have like that kind of like they say, don't judge a book by its cover. But really, when you what that's what catches your eye when you're walking through the bookstore. Yeah. So if you have a professional looking one as opposed to just a janky looking one, the professional looking one's going to get picked up all the time. That's I, personal I am a professional librarian, and I give everybody <laughs> listening permission to judge books by their covers <laughs> because it says something about the author and about the quality. And if it's a bad quality on the outside, it's probably a bad quality on the inside. Right, right. And we can do a whole other episode on this one, but I was going to say a lot of times when they republish like classics it's because they're updating the book cover so that a younger generation <laughs> yeah, will want yeah, to pick it up and read it <laughs> you know what i i forgot to um write down where i saw this article but i did see an article recently about the change in the art design on book covers and in adult fiction there are a lot more like bright blocky and bold covers as opposed to like small and intricate designs because when you download an ebook, you just get a thumbnail of the book cover. Uh-huh. And so you have to be able to make an impression in like a half inch by half inch square on someone's phone rather than a full size book title. So they're they're like changing strategically how they do book designs or book cover designs. This will have to be a whole other episode. That, that sounds interesting. Because I was going to say the next step is to format your manuscript, right? So do you want to do ebook or print? Luckily, a lot of people are going ebooks today because they, um, it's cheaper, right? All you have to do is just oh, share. Yeah. All you have to do is, is share your file. That's it. Just share your PDF, and then they they do the rest of it. Um, and a lot of publishers go print on demand, so they don't have extra copies of your book just sitting in a warehouse. They literally won't print it until somebody orders it, and that gets super expensive. Um, for, on both ends, for the consumer and the author. Um, and uh, then the next step would say, it says to pick a self-publishing platform. 
And again, this got really easy with Amazon. Like Amazon, yeah. Amazon has, uh, I think a lot of the eBooks out there now are self-published or a lot of self-published books are they on have Amazon. They an unfair market share, they I really think. really do. Um, and there's been ongoing litigation of, you know, Amazon's publishing for a very long time. Um, like most things, it's a blessing and a curse because yeah. it's opened up to a lot of people, but do they have a monopoly on, you know, small press and publishing? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Somebody's about to decide on that in the near future. So. <laughs> uh, now, step six, I thought was kind of redundant. It says self-publish the book. It's like, just, just go to market, just put it out there, yeah. upload it, do, decide if you're going print on demand. But the most important one they said is to up keep your marketing after the book is published because you are your best hype person. And the only way people are going to know about your book is to get the word out there that it is out there. Might we suggest book talk? Yeah. TikTok's <laughs> free and easy. Just get on TikTok and get on it's the book talk. Hashtag. You're good. <laughs> uh, um, so-, so I wanted to, to talk about, um, you know, uh, so many authors today have gone from, they kind of hone their skills as writing fan fiction before they jump into creating their own work. Yeah. Um, and there's several different authors that I've prepared to talk about here. And fan fiction gets a lot of criticism because like- I, I was gonna make a comment. for people. I was going to make, I was going to make a comment, like literally, like when I hear fan fiction and this is totally not fair, but when I hear fan fiction, I immediately think, oh, you're, um, you're going to write spicy stories. <laughs> I, I always jump initially to like goth teenagers writing about Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I made you read part of my immortal, right? That, that you Harry did. Potter fan fiction. It's a notorious, uh. Anybody out there, just Google My Immortal Fan Fiction. It is, it's a trip. Chef's kiss. It's notorious. It's an internet meme that dates back 15 years, maybe. And it's it's a good one. It's, but it's it is great. Be prepared for the rabbit hole. <laughs> but but some of these authors that started off in fan fiction, they did end up, you know, getting published and, and actually kind of popular. Yeah, so these are not memes. These are, you know, legitimate authors that have gone on to see tons of great success. Um, and my personal favorite out of all of these is probably Rainbow Roll. Um, she wrote, she's written a lot of books, um, related and unrelated, uh, but Fangirl is the book that relates the most to fan fiction. And it's funny because at one point she did write Harry Potter fan fiction okay. and fangirl is a fiction title about two sisters who are both obsessed with simon snow who is a fictional boy wizard who goes to wizarding school in this fangirl universe okay and the two main characters write fan fiction and are obsessed with simon snow but as they grow up you know the one sister kind of moves on from it and the other sister stays interested in it, and they kind of clash in that regard. Um, but after she wrote Fangirl, there is now a trilogy of Simon Snow books. Oh. Um, and the first book um, is Carry On, and that kind of takes place like 
okay, so Simon Snow has defeated the Dark Wizard or whatever. What happens now? Um, and his life throughout Carry On, Wayward Son, and Anyway the Wind Blows, which is the last book, he kind of falls apart and tries to find a place as like, am I involved in magic? And I, am I not involved in magic? Like, who am I? Who are these people? What does this have? You know, it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek Harry Potter after story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's all based on like a fan fiction within a fan fiction. <laughs> and the whole series is really enjoyable. I really liked it. Um, the next one I wanted to bring up uh, is uh, Allie Hazelwood, who has been writing a lot of um, romance books lately. And she specifically focuses on uh, women working in STEM fields. Okay. Um, so female engineers and everything. Um, she's written Love on the Brain and Love Theoretically and uh, The Love Hypothesis. Okay. And this all started out... Uh, she is actually a PhD. She has a PhD in neuroscience. Uh, she is a university professor, and she also writes Star Wars fan fiction. No way. Oh, <laughs> and man. so she is one of those stories where uh, an editor stumbled upon her Star Wars fan fiction and <laughs> offered a book deal to her, which. That's awesome. <laughs> Let's face it, that's uncommon. That is awesome. Makes yeah. for a cool story. And like she's she's not a goth teen. She is a functional adult <laughs> <laughs> with a a serious education and job. And you know, it, it's turned into something really great for her and for everybody else too. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that and that was kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. After, as I did research for this episode, I realized that it's just fans who want to expand on their their love of their fandom and i and, and honestly I, we we kind of talked about cult movies and things like that in 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 another episode and it reminded me of that like how they take ownership of their fandom to a point where like i want to see more of it and i'm going to create it myself and i think that's cool i think that's that's really awesome mm -hmm. and it's it's a good way for i think writers to kind of hone their skills a little bit yeah, because you have the scaffolding already. Like, if your problem is just getting words on a page, like you maybe don't have to come up with the characterizations for all the characters, or come up with the overarching plot or world building. Like, you can use those tools that already exist to exercise your own writing, and then eventually launch into making something of your own. Right, uh, which the most notorious of all fan fiction authors turned mainstream authors is probably E.L. James, who wrote uh, Fifty Shades, I, Fifty Shades of Grey, the whole series. I um, love this. This is my favorite yeah. fan fiction. It's like... Started, uh, out, <laughs> started out writing uh, Twilight fan fiction, um, and her her handle was Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. I love it so much. Which that that does fit the goth teenager mold a little bit more <laughs> than really than Ali Hazelwood did. Um, but the entire oh. Fifty Shades of Grey series uh, was was derived from a Twilight fan fiction. Yeah, uh, yeah. and turned into an insanely successful uh, franchise for her. So. 
And it's yeah. it's surprising how people don't know. Like they're like, really? It started off as Twilight fan fiction. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really and did. To me, Twilight seems like it's a fan fiction of something else too. I don't know if that's um, the case or not. I don't know but... if that is the case, but now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, yeah. I couldn't read the Twilight series. I will be honest. I read like a little bit of the first book and and just it was some chick obsessing about some dude's eyes. I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> that's that's uh that's where I landed. Um but I I wanted to talk a little bit about um cuz fan fiction, you know, you can take these uh uh stories and you can grow upon them. Well, nowadays what I've seen a lot of are what they're calling fan edits of film. And this has this has very recently taken off because one the internet and two a lot of the the um digitizing of films and things make it easier to edit and editing software is way more available than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And, and um, this, this is something that since we've started preparing for this episode, I'm like, I do see that a lot more than I realized. Yeah. So. And, and th- when I was, okay. So I got, th- I, I, I watched this video on YouTube called the bizarre world of fan edits and restorations. And it was published by the Royal Ocean Film Society. It's just some guy who obviously was a film student, and he just talks about film. But this specific video was fascinating to me, and I was like, "No way!" And it just—it's these little things that you're like, "Oh, this actually does happen." And you think about it, you're like, "Oh, that's right." And Star Wars, going back to that universe, is the most, <laughs> I think, edited fan universe in movies. Because the most well, famous nobody, one. Nobody hates Star Wars more than Star Wars fans. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I I can imagine these are also people maybe with some computer skills. Yeah, just a little bit. Realization. Well, but yeah. Why why not <laughs> make your own twist on it? Yeah, and and one of the big famous ones is the Phantom Edit. So back in two thousand, right after Star Wars: The Phantom Menace came out, this guy basically uploaded the film and edited it and put it out there as the phantom edit and it was it got better reception than the actual movie it's like this this his name is mike nichols and he basically got rid of a lot of jar jar binks's antics and he kind of changed anakin skywalker's storyline in the movie so that a lot of the stuff he did didn't happen on accident like he got rid of a lot of like really stupid like yippee and oops like he got rid of a lot of those <laughs> And and he put it out on the internet, and the fans ate it up. And that was kind of it. Will I'm not gonna say it was the first fan edit, but it was definitely the one that made it mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's only gotten easier over time because video editing software is a lot easier to use than it used to be. Yeah, and yeah. There's a lot of a lot more digital um, content to work with. Yeah, and and one of the the. Well, at least according to this video, and I guess it kind of makes sense. There is a a website called like fanedit.org or something like that. And you you can see all of these. Yeah, fanedit, fanedit.org. And there are many, 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 many fan edits. And a lot of them are like experimentation. Like what happens if we put um, Star Wars in a silent film era? And so they, they edited it that way. Um, fixing yeah. flaws like the Phantom Edit. And... Um, one guy, like a couple of years ago, the original um, script to uh, um, Raising Cain got up there, uh, got out on the internet, 
And this guy found it and re-edited the movie as close to the screenplay as he could. And um, Brian De Palma saw it and was so impressed with it, he put it on the Blu-ray. <laughs> so, that's really funny yeah so so i mean just like getting famous with your books you can definitely get on the um get on the get on the blu-ray edition of your favorite movie um <laughs> and then the final one is obviously restoration so we talked about this briefly i do own a copy of the original fan or i'm sorry the original theatrical release of star wars but because it has not really been released digitally it's really hard to find. And so fans have taken it upon themselves to take the trilogy that's out there and remove, like kind of restore it back to the 1977 quality. So they're re 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 engineering the, the, uh, the star Wars. Um, and then I just really quickly wanted to do some of these fan edits that I think are fantastic. Um, there, there is a planet of the apes that has been cut down to 22 minutes long as a twilight zone episode. I would love to watch that with Rod Serling and his and his um, um, narration and everything. Um, there is a Stanley Kubrick edit of the AI where they got rid of all of Steven Spielberg's um, additions to the movie. Huh. This one sounds really fun. The Greater Scott edition of Back to the Future, which is all of the deleted scenes, all of the extended scenes, everything. Uh added to the movie that is actually an interesting um idea is maybe not creating your own original content but adding cut content back into the movie yeah uh, where where it should have gone or where it was originally gonna go like your own version of a director's cut that's that's kind of an interesting concept yeah and and again um if you go to fanedit.org, you can see all of these. But uh, the most controversial one, and I think this is an example of fan editing, like like trying to make it your – like this is how I think it would look cool if we edited it this way. But then a lot of fans are like, ooh, I can see why the director made this choice, is the chronological mm-hmm. cut of Pulp Fiction. Like a guy basically took all of the scenes from Pulp Fiction, all the stories from Pulp Fiction, and he put them in chronological order – in the timeline of the movie. So it starts off with Christopher Walken's infamous scene and um, explaining how he has this gold watch. And it ends with um, uh, Bruce Willis walking away from the police. Uh, Spoilers for those who haven't seen Pulp Fiction. (laughs) I have actually never seen Pulp Fiction. Oh, Dan, I spoiled it for you. I'm sorry. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna watch it eventually, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, like like once they put it in a chronological order, it just kind of showed like how some of the story elements didn't make sense, how the timeline just it didn't really work, um, and how it kind of took away some of the mystery of the movie, like some of the suspense of the movie, because that was its own style was the storytelling and how it was edited. Mm-hmm. So because they changed it, everyone was like, Ooh, yeah, hmm. Tarantino knew what he was doing there. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I, I would say if you're interested in seeing, seeing not only fan edits, but reading some fan fiction, uh, I would go to fanedit.org for the movies. And what was the website for the fan fiction? Fanfiction.net. 
It's a trip. <laughs> it's I I bet. Snow Queen's Ice Dragon too. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for a rapid fire today, I I really love this one. Um, I went through fanfiction.net and <laughs> I picked some titles of some fanfics. And your job is to guess: is this a real fanfiction title or is this something I made up? Oh my god! Yes, I'm in. All right, ready? Ready. So the first one, Half-Life, Full-Life Consequences, a Half-Life 2 fanfiction. I'm going to say it's real because Half-Life 2 has been one of those games that have been in development hell for a long time. So everybody's clamoring for more Half-Life content. As, as much as that title really doesn't make much sense, that is accurate. That was a real real one that I find. Yeah. <laughs> the next one, <laughs> The Clampets in Beijing, a Beverly <laughs> Hillbillies fan fiction. <laughs> so, so, they, <laughs> so it's like an episode where they just traveled over to China for a couple of days or something? Like this is the Clampets on vacation in China? Real or fake? That's that's fake. That's fake. That one was real. No. <laughs> I don't. I I'm really interested sometimes in the people that write this. Like, and it was posted in like 2013 or something. Like, who's writing Beverly Hills or Beverly Hillbillies fan fiction in 2013? Like, that's that's an interesting person. That's an interesting choice. I love it. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> Les Miserables 2, a Les Miserables fan fiction. More Miserables? I don't, um, <laughs> that is, that, that's also fake. That one was fake, yes. Yeah, okay. And I, I chose Les Miserables 2 because there is a Titanic 2 fan fiction. Okay, okay. Um, so I'm like, what other like classic-y type thing? Could I well, I was thinking if it was fake. Well, here was my thought process. If it was real, it would be like Jean Valjean's Revenge or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Halloween Dynamite, a Napoleon Dynamite Halloween crossover fan fiction. Oh, I want this to be real. I want this to be real. Real. I'm saying real. Uh, that one was fake. No! Can you write this? Can you write it? Dan, write this. Um, I, I feel like it would be kind of an interesting opportunity because this, it's got some weird actors in it. Well, and it just feels like genres. it just feels like a Scooby Doo meets Halloween kind of yeah, yeah. vibe, right? All right, how about Family Really Does Matter? A Family Matters fan fiction. I'm gonna say that is fake because that is not a Family Matters fan fiction. That is a Fast and Furious fan fiction. What makes you say that? Oh, you haven't been watching the Fast and Furious movies. It's all about family now, Dan. Oh. Yeah, I've never seen a Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> There's um, like two people that, that listen to this podcast that got that. What? <laughs> it's real? We can do a full podcast episode about like mainstream movies that I have not seen. Yeah, let's do that. Um, yeah, Family Matters. Uh, that one was real. <laughs> uh, last one. Dancing leads to optometry visits. A night court fan fiction. <laughs> oh, 
dancing leads to optometry visits? I That's that's fake. That's fake. That's fake. No, that one is also Oh my god. <laughs> I am I'm Which bad is at this. funny cuz this this one was posted a couple of years ago and they just rebooted Night Court. Like, I saw that, just yeah. Got re-released soon. And and so I'm like, there's no way there's a Night Court fan fiction. And I looked it up on fanfiction.net, and there it was. So I picked one of the strangest titles I could find on that. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. Those were fun. I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, So I guess the takeaway from today's episode is if you're going to uh, try to go with fan fiction, come up with a really ridiculous title and hope that it lands. Cause wow, those, and some of those were great. <laughs> crossovers are your friend. If you can pull together two completely unrelated, different genres, different time periods, the, the less it makes sense, the more it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, anyway all right well that's it that we have that's all we got thank you guys so much for listening uh join us next time as we discuss national reading month um so march is reading month uh we would like to thank orion neighborhood television ontv for providing the recording studios for we blame our shelves you can also find episodes of we blame our shelves at our website orionlibrary.org if you have questions, comments, or would like to give us a topic to discuss, email us at podcast at orionlibrary.org. And you can check out everything for your shelf at your local library. Please support them by any means you are able. Until next time, I'm James Pugh. And I'm Dan Major. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.